To me, the book of Ephesians is the high watermark of Paul's writings when he shares about the church. And he eventually comes to a place where he calls it the glorious church. In other words, the church is a reflection of the glory of the God who planned and made it. And that's what we are. And this morning I want to just share some thoughts to you on the role of the church in the world. And that will have a deep impact on our own personal lives as well. One or two things we need to clear up. The church is people. The church is not a building. You don't go to church, you are the church. And if you go into a building, it doesn't necessarily make you the church. Any more than if I walked into a garage, does it make me a motor car? So church is not a building. The second thing is church is not a denomination. You can join a denomination and choose to become a member of the Anglican or Baptist or Presbyterian churches, but that doesn't make you a member of the church that Jesus is building. And we need to know that because many people can come and sit in church and call themselves by a religious title but have never yet met the Saviour who wants to build them into his body. So that's important to know. The word church in the Bible could be just as easily translated as assembly. In fact, it's probably a better word. And it comes from a Greek word, ekklesia, which means a called out people. So people who are members of the church of the living God are people who have got a God call on their lives. You've been called out of sin into righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. You've been called out of darkness into light. You've been called out of the kingdom of Satan and transferred into the kingdom of God's dear Son. And throughout history, God has raised up two assembly people to reflect to who he is and to, in some way, point to who he is. This word ecclesia is a common word throughout scripture. It can refer to any kind of gathering or community of people. But what I want to show is that the two people groups that God has called himself to be his representatives, God has been consistent with both groups. And not only that, both the groups God has called throughout history have the same distinguishing features because those distinguishing features, as we're going to see, are a reflection of the God who's called us. In the Greek Septuagint version of the Bible, uh, this word is used to show Israel's gathering in Mount Sinai. In Exodus chapter 35, then Moses, it's up on the screen, assembled all the congregation of the sons of Israel and said to them, these are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. The word congregation there in the Greek would be ecclesia. It means the assembly. 
And so here that word is used of Israel. And God gave to Israel his special directives to be his people on the earth for a period of time. Of all the nations, God called this people out in his own sovereignty and wisdom. And I want this morning just to highlight four edicts that God gave to Israel, and we're going to see that the church parallels them. The first is Israel was God's firstborn. In Exodus chapter 4 and verse 22, we read, you shall say, this is God speaking to Moses when you go before uh, Pharaoh. You shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So here God refers to Israel as his firstborn son. Now a firstborn son is not necessarily the only child or sibling in a family. However, in the culture of that day, his status was unique and he carried extra responsibilities. In a way, all the nations of the earth are God's children and any one of us can have a meaningful relationship with him. But God chose the Jewish people to be a firstborn to fulfill a unique role to be his representatives to bring godliness to the nations. So that's the first point. Second point, God called them to be a light to the nations. Isaiah 42.6 says this, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. And I will point you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations. And then in the next verse, he gives us the state of nations without God. Look at them. He says, you are to open blind eyes. You are to bring prisoners out from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. So God chose initially Israel to do this. He gave them his instructions that they would bring spiritual sight to the blind. They would bring spiritual freedom to those who were bound and they would bring his light and his salvation to the nations. The third thing is, Israel related to God through the Mosaic Covenant, which was all-encompassing. It governed Israel's civil life, her ceremonial life, her moral life, even down to her diet. And under the first covenant, Israel was God's assembly. And God made his covenant only with the nation of Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verses 1 to 3. Then Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the ordinances which I am speaking in your hearing, that's today, that you may learn them and observe them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us, Horeb. The Lord did not make this covenant with our fathers, but with us, with all of those of us alive here today. And in Deuteronomy 33, 4, 
Moses charged us with a law, a possession for the assembly of Jacob. The fourth thing was that they were in God's kingdom. And when we speak about the kingdom, we need to understand that there are five expressions of the kingdom throughout history. And when you and I enter that expression of God's kingdom that's operative in our day, God literally becomes our king. If you want to know the meaning of the word kingdom, you look at the word kingdom. And you'll see it's made up of two parts, king and dom. And the word dom stands for dominion. So the meaning of kingdom literally is the dominion of God or the rule God. And that means that those who are in God's kingdom are his servants and his subjects. And under Moses, Israel was in the expression of God's theocratic kingdom. This was God's rule by means of a theocracy over Israel. And God exercised his dominion by means of mediators. He raised up judges, he raised up prophets, and he raised up kings. And the law of Moses was God's rules of connection with himself. So in Psalm 114.2 we read, Judah became his sanctuary, Israel his dominion. So here are the four points I want to highlight. Israel was God's firstborn son. Israel was God's light to the nations, was under God's all-encompassing law and under God's kingdom rule. Then God, through the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel, began to announce a new covenant that he wanted to make with Israel. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That's known as the new covenant. That's the covenant that we Gentiles have been brought into, but God initially made it with Israel. But you and I have been grafted into that. Ezekiel mirrors the same thing, and this is a very important passage of Scripture for the day in which we live. Ezekiel 36, 24. Because you and I are living in the day when this very prophecy is being fulfilled for I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land 
you and I can open our papers or watch our TV and that's what's happening today. 8.8 million Jews have returned to the land of Israel and it's their land. When they come, notice what God said he's going to do. So you and I need to keep our eyes open in the day in which we live because when you start to see a spiritual awakening in Israel, you're seeing what this next verse is talking about. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers so you will be my people and I will be your God. God made five covenants with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, people of Israel. And here we see two of those covenants working in tandem in our day. The first is the land covenant. God said to uh, Abraham, I will give to you the land upon which you are standing. And second, here is the new covenant working in tandem with the land covenant. The problem with the Mosaic law was that it was external. And all of us know that the law we really keep is the law that's in our heart, not external law. And it was reliant on Israel keeping it, but they couldn't keep it. We read back in Jeremiah, it was a covenant which they broke. And so Israel failed in their calling to be totally committed to God's governance and to be the people that would bring the redemptive light of God to the nations. But Paul gives to us in the book of Romans the reason why God in his wisdom, in his sovereignty, works in ways that are way above ours. Romans chapter 11 and verse 25. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. Now notice the words that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until. In other words, there's a parenthesis in history and time where God says there's a spiritual veil coming over the Jewish people but it's only until, and then he tells us when that will be, until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And so over the last 2,000 years, God has been moving amongst the Gentile nations, and you are the product of that moving. And he's continuing to move. Unfortunately, we're watching the Gentile nations, particularly in Europe, turn away from the living God. But he's still working in Asia, in Africa, in South America. God is going to do a work 
until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. Then Paul gives us the reason of how he's going to work. Look at verse 30. For just as you, that's we Gentiles, once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their, the Jewish disobedience, so these, these are the Jewish people, also now have been disobedient that because of the mercy shown to you, we Gentiles, they also may now be shown mercy. So God's going to show mercy again to all the peoples of the earth. So God inaugurated a superior covenant whereby man could achieve obedience and the righteousness of God, but it would be a much, through a much better covenant than the first one. What he's going to do is take that covenant of God and internalize it. He's going to write it on our hearts. Look at what Jeremiah and Ezekiel said would happen under this new covenant. And there's seven points here you could put up on the screen. The new covenant will be very different from the first. Second, it will not be written on stone or parchment, but on our hearts. Third, it will cleanse us from all filthiness. Fourth, it will give a new heart and spirit. Five, and this is so important, God himself will come and dwell within us. Sixth, we would then be able to walk in his ways. And seven, it would mean he could save us. And beloved, in order for this to come about, God was going to create a new vehicle through whom he could achieve his redemptive purposes for the world. That assembly of people is the one new man made up of Jews and Gentiles he calls his church. And Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2.13 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it, having put to death the enmity. If you want to know how to become a member of this new church, this new assembly, Paul tells us here how that is achieved. We become members of the new assembly by being in Christ, by being washed by his blood, by being reconciled by his work on the cross. And then when we come through that door, God says we become participants in this new covenant. And Jesus gives us two confessions 
that we have to make if we want to enter into this new body. There was a debate going on in Jesus' day as to who he was. And he finally gathered his disciples together and he puts a question to them in Matthew chapter 16. He says to them, who do you say that I am? And Peter comes out with a classic answer. He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He used the definite article, the, the, the. The son of the Christ, at least. The son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You have to have a divine revelation to enter this new assembly of God. Then the Lord goes on and he says, I say, also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. So entry into this new assembly is by acknowledging through faith that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And if you've never done that, you need to do it. If you don't do it, you will never be part of the church that God is building. Paul put it this way, but what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In other words, faith is expressed by believing in the heart and confessing with the mouth. That's how we express our faith. Then he goes on to say, for with the heart a man believes resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. And beloved, if you've never done that, and you may have been coming to this, this church all your life. Do it this morning. And I'll be available at the end of the service to speak with you and show you very quickly how you can enter the church of the living God. Because when you do that, you enter the spiritual kingdom that Jesus spoke of when he shared with Nicodemus. Remember what Jesus said. I say to you, unless you are born water and of the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. I want you to note what Paul said we are to confess. We are to confess that Jesus is Lord. And beloved, when we do that, we are acknowledging Jesus as our supreme authority the one who now has control over our lives. And beloved, this makes Jesus' authority all-encompassing. To acknowledge 
Jesus as our king is to assert an alternative reality to every other human authority. It is to say that whatever human pretensions to power may exist, it is God who reigns supreme. And however things appear, or however we may want them to be, it is not we who are in control, but God. And when the church really begins to live like this, we will challenge all other powers, both secular and spiritual, declaring that God reigns and that he will have the final word. And that's so important. Paul calls Jesus our sovereign. Look at 1 Timothy 6.15. He who is the blessed, the only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Lift your eyes above the news media. Lift your eyes above all the worlds going on. Above them is a sovereign God who is working all things according to his will. And this is how you and I are to acknowledge God. As such, his will, his policies, his gospel becomes our task puts it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 19. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the gospel of reconciliation. Therefore we, the church, are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. In your mixed world, that's your message, beloved. We come to people not to condemn them, but to reconcile them to God. Why? Because God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I just want to remind you again of the four things of Israel. The next slide. Israel was God's firstborn son. Israel was God's light to the nations. Israel was under God's all-encompassing law. And Israel was under God's kingdom rule. And beloved, this is currently what God intends for his church in this present age. The next slide will show it to us. We are the assembly of God. We are now his firstborn, Hebrews chapter 12, 23. We are in God's spiritual kingdom, John 3, 5. We are now in the new covenant under the all-encompassing law of Christ, Romans chapter 8, verse 2, and we are now lights in this world. Paul, writing to the Ephesian church in Ephesians 5, tells us how we now, we, we, how we, we fulfill our role, shall we say, in the world. Here it is, Ephesians 5, 8. 
For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Notice there's two groups of people here, those who are in darkness and those who are in light. And both produce fruit. And it's evidential fruit. And so he says, we now, the church, are light in the Lord. Therefore, we have to walk or behave as children of light. And then he shows us what the fruit or our behavior should be like. In our conversations, in the way we conduct our life, we need to ask ourselves, am I demonstrating the goodness of God? God is good. And is the way I am living good? Does it reflect his goodness? We need to ask ourselves, is the conversation and the ethics and the way we live in our home and in our business and in our sport life and, and all the various areas of our life, does it produce the righteousness that reflects the righteousness of Christ? Because this is how we should be living. Do the ways I speak in my conversation, are they truth that reflect the truth that the truth of the Spirit would also utter? In other words, is my life in the world pleasing to God? You see, beloved, this is our mandate. My sister and her husband recently visited uh, Mount John Observatory in Lake Tekapo. And the area is considered to be free from all light pollution. And when pointing out a star or a constellation, the guide used a laser beam that reached 15 kilometers out into the night sky. And with it, he could circle a star that he wanted the tourists to observe. And beloved, this is our task in the world. Our laser beam is our testimony with which we point to Jesus, the firstborn from the dead. Jesus, the king of the universe. Jesus, the light of the world. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So at the end of the day, it's not about us. It's all about him. Listen to our king's instructions from Mark chapter 16 and verse 15 and then Luke 24. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Do you know what the gospel is? The gospel is Christ died for your sins. He was buried and he rose again. That is the gospel. That is what you preach. Then he goes on. Thus it is written that Christ would suffer and rise again the third day and that repentance 
for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem and you are witnesses of these things. There's our mandate. And Paul sums the whole thing up in my last verse in Colossians 1.18. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Beloved, this is both our position and our declaration in the world that Jesus should have first place in everything. And I want to just finish with two questions. What place does Jesus have in your life? Remember, for Israel and his church, his law is all-encompassing. And number two, are you fulfilling your role as a member of his church?